Today we're going to be continuing in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. So we're going to be in chapter 15, 1 through 15. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure Caleb mentioned this, but we won't have a sharing time today or communion. We're going to have a shorter service, but we will have food together. We will be celebrating um, together by having a meal. Um, and we do have um, our kids in service today. So Luke and Noel will be joining us. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys, for being here. Thank you for reading, Noel. I know there's some tough words in there. This is, this is a, that's kind of a dark passage to read on Family Sunday. And this passage I'm going to read today, too, is also a dark passage. So we've got some, like, very specific examples of evil. We have, like, abuse of power in one instance. And then this, this uh, the crucifixion and the arrest and, and Pilate is also an abuse of power. So we got, we got all kinds of evil happening here. I'm just going to read from verse, I'll read, for, I'll read all of uh, 1 through 15. And you can follow with me. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 6. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That's the reading of God's word. We're going we're gonna to take it in two chunks today. The first five verses we're going to talk about how Jesus responds to accusations. We're going to talk about power. We're talking about poise. And then the second half um, from 6 to 15, we're going to talk about the power of the crowd. Okay, so both of these sections relate to a relationship with power. Now, um, I want to give a little context. We are in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And as I've mentioned before, time seems to slow down toward the end of Mark's gospel. As with all the gospels, there is this kind of laser-like focus on the last week of Jesus and especially the last 24 hours. So we're getting this drill down of these last hours of Jesus's life. And in the last three chapters or so, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem 
he recognizes what's going to happen. He knows that um, the chief priests and scribes are after him, and we see an escalation of tension. You know, it keeps ratcheting up as the chief priests and scribes try to find a way to kill him. And as we saw earlier, um, they're trying to find a way to kill him, but do it secretly because they know that Jesus is popular. They know that he has, the, he has popular opinion on his side. And so now there's a consultation. They have kind of this fake trial, which uh, Muhammad talked about last week. Yeah, Muhammad talked about this fake trial that they have last week um, that was uh, a mockery of a trial because they're just looking for accusations and it's held at the high priest's house. And now in order for them, um, in order for the chief priests and scribes to get Jesus crucified, they need the approval of the Roman governor, okay? And that's Pilate. And so they need to get Pilate's approval. And so they need to find a way to get Pilate to execute this guy and also get the crowd against Jesus. And so this is what happens. And so what I want you to notice here is that beginning in verse five with this, I'm sorry, verse one with this consultation, Jesus is bound, he's led away, he's delivered to Pilate, and now Pilate asks him questions. And Pilate asks one question in particular, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus just says, you have said so. And then, I mean, this is just Pilate asking, and then you get a whole bunch of other questions. You get the chief priests accusing him of many things, and then Pilate again asks, have you no answer to make? And Jesus does not respond. He makes no response. And that's is consistent because that's the same way Jesus has uh, responded to the other attacks. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think of a moment. I just want you to imagine for a second a moment in the past where you have been accused of something, okay? Where you have been cornered, um, where people have um, leveled some kind of accusation or um, accused you of doing something wrong, and I'm actually not that concerned whether it's true or not, okay? Because uh, it's easy to go, Jesus was falsely accused, right? And in, many ca- in this case, he was falsely accused, but there were some things that he said that they're actually true. Like, for instance, that he, is, he did make a claim or he is claiming to be the king of the Jews, right? So I want you to think about a moment where you've been accused of something or someone has made a comment about you publicly and you felt cornered. And that could be um, in a close family relationship. It could have happened, you know, just recently over Thanksgiving. Um, it could be in the workplace. It could be in the context of recreation, like a pickup basketball game. It could be with a coworker. But I just want you to imagine um, a moment where you have received, been on the receiving end of an accusation. I have a number of moments I can think of. Um, one, the one, one in particular is where I made a thoughtless comment um, after visiting a life group at my former church, at our, at our mother church, Garden City. Okay, so I want you to keep that in your head, and I want you to think about how you responded in that moment. Okay, how you responded when there was an accusation made um, towards you. And then I want you to notice the things that Jesus does not do as he's being accused. And this is, this is actually consistent, not only with this instance, but in previous instances too. And there's about five things that I think Jesus doesn't do, which would be very tempting in those moments. The first thing he doesn't do is he does not get violent. Okay, Jesus does not get violent. He may be angry, but he doesn't show it. He does not lash out in response to the accusations. Again, whether they're true or not. He doesn't even dignify the accusation itself. And it is likely that he felt hurt and disappointment and sadness and we, we know that because in the encounter, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, he's, I mean, it doesn't say in this account, but he's crying blood. He's, he's, he's talking to God. He's asking God to take this cup from him. So it's likely that he feels great disappointment and sadness and, and even pain and sorrow, 
right? Um, and yet, anger does not appear to be one of those emotions, and it does not translate into any, into any kind of violence. And we know that because um, there is uh, one of his disciples who cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear when he's being arrested, and Jesus gets upset. Jesus does not, does not condone that behavior at all. The second thing I want you to notice he doesn't do is Jesus does not run. He does not try to escape. And I think that's also important that it would be easy in that moment, just as, as the disciples desert him, it's easy for him to just try to get away. Jesus doesn't do that. The third is that he doesn't stonewall. Stonewall means to be silent the entire time and kind of like emotionally disengage. Now, it seems like he's doing that, but he does actually answer one question. He does answer Pilate. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And it says, you have said so. So he does respond to what I would say is the most important question. He does respond to it. So he is engaged. And then the last thing that he does not do is he doesn't explain himself. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't use this opportunity to sermonize. And I think this is actually a really important idea that I think maybe as Westerners, maybe as Americans, maybe as evangelicals, we have a hard time understanding that there's actually an important time to keep your mouth shut, okay? That Jesus knows when to not say anything. Because I know I've been trained with my, you know, crusade or now crew background, um, and throughout um, a lot of my equipping as a church leader, I'm supposed to speak up. I'm supposed to make my voice heard. I'm supposed to proclaim the gospel. I'm, and I know um, in our our uh, Sunday school series, our, our, our training series, we talked about listen, ask, tell. And this seems to be a perfect time to tell the gospel. I mean, he's public. He's in front of all these people. This is a perfect time pro to proclaim the gospel. And yet Jesus does not. In fact, there's probably other times where Jesus was silent and didn't say anything as well, but the text doesn't indicate that to us because the, the scriptures don't go around saying, and this and this happened, and Jesus didn't say anything. Right? It doesn't go out and recognize moments where Jesus kept his mouth shut because those are not particularly noteworthy. We're, we're more interested in what Jesus said. But I, again, I speculate there, there were many moments when Jesus didn't say anything, when he listened and he recognized this was not the right time. And so what I would ask ourselves is maybe, maybe the most important ministry you can have isn't just speaking up, but it's also knowing when to keep your mouth shut. Because in this pivotal moment of Jesus's trial, okay, of him about to be crucified, he really doesn't say very much. And so um, in the case of where you're imagining um, what that previous instance of where someone made an accusation against you, you know, how did you, I'm, and I'm, this is a thought question, you don't have to answer it out loud. This is a thought question. How did you, do, how did you decide for what you would say and what you didn't say. And how often were you tempted, because I know I was, to either run away, to get violent, to explain oneself, um, or to blame someone. And I think my temptation, actually, I know what I wanted to do in that instance where I made a thoughtless comment. I really, really wanted to explain myself. I, I wanted to sermonize. Now, I'm a preacher, so maybe that's a good excuse. But one thing I've realized is the most important aspect of my ministry isn't the things that I say. It's actually, especially when I'm counseling or shepherding, it's what I don't say. It's knowing when to shut up. And I would say the most powerful way that I can uh, express my, my ministry and my love for other people and my faith in God is not to defend myself 
when I'm accused. Okay. Now, again, I think this requires wisdom and discernment. Okay. It really does require wisdom and discernment because I think there are a couple of reasons why Jesus did not say anything in this moment. And the first reason is this. The audience that he was speaking to, in particular, the chief priests and scribes, they had already made their decision about what they wanted to do. They had already made up their mind. This is not a neutral audience in any way. I think there was a, there was a deep recognition in Jesus that this audience was not going to be receptive to anything Jesus said. And so maybe one wisdom that we can have is maybe it's time to keep your mouth shut if that the person listening is not open to you, is not open in any way. Okay, so perhaps that's one um, element of wisdom in making that decision. The second thing is that uh, this audience, the chief priests and scribes, had plenty of opportunity to listen to Jesus and his teaching. Okay, there were so many opportunities when Jesus was in the marketplace and when he's in the synagogue where they could have heard Jesus preaching and teaching. So it was widely known. They had plenty of opportunity. So another aspect of wisdom, knowing when to keep your mouth shut, is when the person you're talking to has already heard everything you have to say. Okay, and a lot of times when it comes to close family, that's probably the case. They've had enough exposure to you where they know where you're coming from. And so that's another element of wisdom to know when to keep your mouth shut. And then finally, I think the biggest reason Jesus kept his mouth shut is because he recognized that keeping his mouth shut for this moment allows him to get to the greatest moment that this moment was just a lead up to something bigger and something greater. And he did not want to get distracted from that mission and that purpose to go to the cross. And so what I would say is, you know to keep your mouth shut. It's important to keep your mouth shut when you know it leads to something better in the future. Because the silence is not complete. This is not the end of the story. You being silent is not the end of the story. And I think a lot of us in the, in the rhetoric of today's culture is you need to speak up, you need to have your voice heard because that's your only opportunity. That's the end of the story. But for Jesus, this trial is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story at all. It's really just the beginning of the end, right? It's the, it's the, it's the setup to the crucifixion. And so keeping it, um, Jesus keeps his mouth shut and he only admits to the most important truth And even then, he doesn't say exactly what it is. He said, you have said so. You have said that I'm king of the Jews, and he acknowledges that. And so could I just encourage you today, and this is my first point, is that know when to keep your mouth shut, and that you have a defender and an advocate in Christ, because Christ sets not only a model for us in staying silent and not defending himself, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. You have the Holy Spirit, and you can trust the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to know what to say, to know what to say. And that also means knowing when not to say it, when to stay silent. All right, let's keep going. Mark chapter 15, verse six. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Okay, now let me just talk about this tradition. Now there's this, uh, it's called the, the Paschal. How do, I, how do I say that word? I think, or Paschal, Paschal. Thank you, Rod. I was looking at you. Thank you. Pas- Paschal. Um, and so this is the Passover feast. It's called the Paschal, Paschal uh, Feast. Um, and so just like today, there's a Christmas tradition of pardons. Okay. Um, apparently, there's the month of December is more people are released from prison than any other month. When presidents and governors throw open the doors of the nation's prisons and free some lucky inmates in the spirit of Christmas. Okay. Same idea here. This Jewish holiday, the Passover, there's a tradition where... Um, during this Passover feast, the pilot will release a prisoner. 
And so that's, that's the context that we're hearing here. And so what happens is there are rebels in prison, and one of them who's committed murder is named Barabbas. And so the crowd comes up, and they ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, which is release a prisoner during Passover. And then Pilate says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Because this is by far the most famous prisoner that he has. Jesus is the most famous prisoner. And he senses that it's out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He, he recognizes there's, the chief priests are up to no good here. He gets it. He understands there's some, there's some conspiracy here that, he need, that he's aware of. And yet in verse 11, it says, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. He, they stir up the crowd to release for them Barabbas instead. So there's a tremendous irony here. And the irony is this. Both Jesus and Barabbas can be viewed as a kind of rebel, right? They're both a kind of rebel. Um, and this Jesus is known as the king of the Jews. And Barabbas is a different kind of uh, a king, you could say. Um, but the Jews want a king, ultimately, well, by saying they want Barabbas released, they want a king who is violent. They want a king who is violent. They want a king, they want a leader who will take by force. They don't want a wimp. They want someone who can stand up to oppression and rule with an iron fist, rule with an iron fist rather than an open hand. And I think about for ourselves, does that describe us? Does that describe anything about a crowd of people? Because throughout Israel's history, they have been wanting a king. And even today, I would say one of the aspects of our celebrity culture is that we also, we kind of, we want a king. We want someone who is powerful and effective and strong. We want a leader who will take by force. We don't want a wimp. We want someone who can stand up to oppression and who will rule with an iron fist rather than an open hand. And so the, the part of the popularity of many of our celebrities today or many of the people that we want to, to really rule is that kind of strength because we want someone who's strong and the irony is that Barabbas failed as a revolutionary and he commits murder in an insurrection. And yet because of, I guess, his passion and his violence, that's whom the crowd wants. And so if we look a little more carefully, let's think about the power of the crowd. And what I want to do now is I want you to imagine what are the ways in which you are influenced by the crowd. And I'm going to speculate a little bit in verse 11. It says the chief priests stirred up the crowd. And so I want to speculate a little bit about what it means for them to have stirred up the crowd. Now, here's a couple different ways. Again, speculation of what that might have looked like. They might have planted rumors in the crowd. They might have planted rumors about Jesus. They might have planted rumors that Barabbas is actually a better guy, that Barabbas is the leader that they wanted. They might have also planted people who would shout, okay, people who would yell, or they were doing the yelling. They might have found influential people and paid them to be able to speak up on behalf of, uh, of asking Jesus to be crucified, of yelling for Jesus to be crucified. They probably showed passion and excitement for releasing Barabbas, and they appealed to the Jews' sense of justice and throwing off Roman impression in order to ignore the fact that Jesus was innocent, that he was tremendously popular, that he actually done healing. Now then the question becomes, for us, does that happen today? Do we have people today who stir up the crowd, who plant whispers in a crowd, who plant rumors, who find influential people and perhaps pay them 
Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. It happens all the time. We are bombarded by messaging today that is, meant, that is actually for the explicit purpose of stirring up the crowd. I think Twitter is, is based on that. The whole idea of stirring up a crowd. Um, so you're either for Fox News or against it. You're either for CNN or against it. You're either a mindless charismatic or you hate the Holy Spirit. You're either reformed or you're theologically uninformed. Um, and it doesn't just apply to theology, right? It applies to politics, like I said. I mean, even it applies to the way that we live our lives like today. I know I am super influenced by Black Friday sales. <laughs> you throw a Black Friday sale 60% off in front of me, I'm like, I'm stirred up. I have passion and I have excitement for 60% off. Um, and I get on Facebook and I want to travel because I see pictures of people, um, you know, I don't know what, what it is about um, people who like to fish and just showing off how big of a fish they caught. I think it's because in the last five years, we have not caught any fish when we've gone fishing, okay? I remember catching fish when I was with, yeah. Thank you, Amy, for that look of compassion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the look of compassion. And so when I see someone like holding the, the big fish, and I know, I know a lot of it is like a camera trick where they're holding the fish like really close to the camera to make it look really big and then make themselves look really small. I totally get it, but I'm, I completely fall for it. I get stirred up by that. Um, and I just want it to be known that we are so influenced by the power of the crowd. The crowd influences everything that we think about. You know, you don't even choose your own clothes. You choose clothes based on what the crowd, what you're, what's, what's stirred up and what's placed in front of you in terms of clothes to wear. I know there's one um, TikTok video about skin fades and North Face jackets that people, like guys in college, love to wear. And it's just picture or just video of guys in college with the skin fade, like the really short haircut. I was going to kind of point at Caleb, but he hasn't, he hasn't got the fade for a while. And North Face puffy jacket, and that's like the uniform of college-age men. Okay, and This was like in Scotland or something like that. But there is a power of the crowd, and you are not immune to it. You are not immune to it. And last week, uh, Mohammed talked about talking with Enrique, one of the San Jose State, uh, San Jose State students, about his religion. And what I find fascinating about these conversations that we have with students when it comes to religion is inevitably there's some conversation like, I, I, don't, I don't really want Christianity. Christianity is too oppressive. I have my, I have my own way of relating to God, a, a, very, um, a, a God who welcomes everyone because they're all the same way. They're all getting to God and we're all, getting, we're all getting to the same place. We're all getting to God. We just have our own way to do it. And I think, wow, you are, okay, I'm sorry. I, I can't. I can't not be sarcastic. You are the first person to think of that, right? You are the first person, you are the first person to think that you have found the exclusive way to know God or the most inclusive way to know God. But throughout history, everyone has been proposing that they have their own way to reach God. And they think that they're everyone thinks that they're a nonconformist. But when everyone thinks that they're a nonconformist, they're really conformist, right? Because that's the irony of all these different religious positions that people have, is I think they're the first ones to do it. And that's not true. Because all of these different, all these different religions and religious thoughts, there's nothing new under the sun. We're all influenced by the crowd. And so what I want to, my, my closing point is that we want to be careful that we're victims of crowd think, of crowd think. And we're, we, we're all victims of it. And so let me give you some characteristics of crowd think, okay? Crowd think. Now, let me give you the motto of crowd think, okay? And this is what is evidenced by this crowd. 
is you shoot first and ask questions later. You shoot first, you ask questions later. Okay, so here's one, here's the first characteristic, is scapegoating. The crowd will always scapegoat and blame one external source as evil. In this case, it's obvious what that external source of evil is, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the evil one. And if Jesus is the evil one, hey, we'll take Barabbas, right? If Jesus is the ultimate evil one, we'll take Barabbas. Um, and so what you have is like an incorrect, you have poor threat assessment, okay? And second, when you, um, when you incorrectly um, assess threats, then violence and accusation are the proper response to the threat. Violence is always the way for the crowd, okay? The crowd responds with violence. Okay, the third one, and I think this is the one that's most powerful, is that there's only one course of action when you, have, when you respond to a threat. Okay, there's only one thing that you can do. It's a narrow focus, okay? And that there's an immediacy. You have to respond now. There's an urgency to responding to the threat. And so um, I recognize one thing that I appreciate about our body is that we have both um, some theological diversity and political diversity within our body. And someone recently asked me a question about, hey, um, do we have political stances? Does our church have political stances? And no, we don't. Now, I fully recognize that the things that I say can constitute, can be interpreted as a political stance. Absolutely. There's no way to avoid talking about politics in the sense of like, I, I have a certain ethical system, right? And that, of course, affects the way I think about politics. But I love that we can think differently about those ideas because there is not one solution. There is not one ethical solution. And it is not violence and it is not blaming one group of people or one person. And the beauty, a couple weeks ago, when I preached on the passage of the woman with the jar of fragrance, okay, that she breaks um, and anoints Jesus before his burial, before his crucifixion, is I love that is because as a Christian, there is creative freedom, that you don't have to operate with the urgency of the crowd, and you can uplift someone in some creative and unique ways. And that's the idea of being a Christian. And so let me close by giving two suggestions in terms of how to recognize, how to escape crowd think. Number one, it is to make time to be by yourself, okay? To make time to be by yourself um, and escape from uh, the noise of the crowd. And I would say this is very simple. That means escaping by yourself and not having a device with you because the way the world, the way the crowd influences us today is through our devices. And when I say to be by yourself, it is to say no to that device for a brief period of time, for just this brief moment of time where you can, med where you can uh, meditate and reflect. And then it's not just a negative aspect. It is also to be able to meditate on the truth, on the most important truths of who God is and who you are. Okay, a lot of times we tell people, you know, this is what not to do, but we don't tell them what to do. And what I would ask you to uh, focus on in that moment of your meditating is who is God and who are you? And one of the premises of today, of Family Sunday, is that you are a child of God and you are the beloved. And there is creative freedom in being a child. You can express that love and devotion in many ways, okay? There is a creative freedom in being a child. And so lastly, um, in closing, what I would say today is that we trust in the one who surrenders power. We trust in the, dot, in the, in the dead and then risen Christ, 
the crucified and risen Christ who surrendered power so that we could be declared sons of sons and daughters of the Most High King. So would you choose the defensive, the, the defenseless one today? Would you choose the powerless one who didn't defend himself? Let's pray together. Father God, would you forgive us because we know not what we do. We are powerless in the face of the crowd. We fall to groupthink, to crowdthink all the time. We resort to violence. We fight to defend ourselves. We label people as enemies. Lord, would your forgiveness reign in our hearts? Would we surrender power as you did? Thank you for giving us your spirit and for recognizing in our moment of powerlessness that you died for us and that because of your death and resurrection, we are now free, free to express love to you, free to be beloved children of God. We pray this in your name. Amen.